Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, July 16th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is Amazon Prime Day. Not tomorrow, the 17th. 17, actual prime number. But today, the 16th. That got me a little depressed. But you know what else got me a lot more depressed? Let's turn to international news. Mike, what is your assessment of the state of American foreign policy? And also your description of the trend lines thereof. I would say torture, disparish. No, no, no. Dystopia, decliny. No, wait, I know it. Helsinki. Yes, to Helsinki, where President Trump met with a major campaign donor, Vladimir Putin. Okay, let me play you some of his answers to a question, Trump's that is, and we're going to try to figure out retroactively what the question could have been that elicited this answer. So here now, the president's answer to a specific question. We will play from the beginning of the answer. So let me just say that we have two thoughts You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Why haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office of the Democratic National Committee? I've been wondering that. So you heard that about taking the servers, never taking the servers. So ask yourself, what what was that question? Was it something like, uh, Mr. President, were there some extraneous factors that law enforcement or data professionals have totally discounted in the Russian election interference case that you can cite? Or maybe the questioner asked, Mr. President, you have a bully pulpit. Perhaps you can rebut, but first explain some of the dumbest irrelevant facts that conspiracy theorists are talking about in terms of Russia screwing with our election. Maybe the question was lost in translation. Nope, it was from an American, AP reporter. And here was the question that elicited that answer. Um, Just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016? And would you warn him to never do it again? And I just played his answer. Do you denounce the hacking? Well, what about the servers? The servers that were totally unnecessary in determining that a hack took place. A hack that has been documented by all the law enforcement agencies. And in fact, has also been brought before a grand jury and a bunch of citizens signed off on it. And now it's the subject of an indictment. Yes, that we're going to talk about the servers. He went on. I've been wondering that. I've been asking that for months and months, and I've been tweeting it out and calling it out on social media. Where is the server? I want to know where is the server and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. What is the server saying? Who does the server serve? Would slavish service to the server serve my purpose as I save myself by slathering palaver? The server. Ah, yes, the server. Let me lay on you a couple of interesting facts. One, according to SeafoodSource.com, the most popular fish among Russians is herring. 400,000 metric tons consumed a year. Number two, the nickname of Russians during the Soviet era was Reds. And I only mention Reds and herring because the whole server thing is a red herring. So really all Trump did was deflect and throw up flares, and try to dominate the ether, and confuse, 
and get confused. It's really not so different from what he does all the time, except this time there was Vladimir Putin standing next to him. And you can't blame Trump for that. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you totally can. I guess it's like they say, you got to serve somebody until you get served with a subpoena. On the show today, we play talk show karaoke about a John Bolton Sunday show spot. But first, Silicon Valley has come to dominate our culture and our minds. The real story behind the founders and shapers of the valley, in their own words, an oral history compiled by Adam Fisher. He's up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Writing the history of Silicon Valley seems a little bit daunting. You might think it's like writing the history of Detroit and automobiles, or maybe like writing the history of a sector, the history of American agriculture. But I I was thinking about it. It's really not. It's, It's like writing the history of an idea and an idea that's ongoing and an idea that's evolving. So maybe the best way to do that is not to focus on what it means or what it meant, but just focus on the people. And in fact, let the people tell their own story. And that's what Adam Fisher does in the new book, Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley, as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom. It's an oral history. It's expansive. It's fascinating. Adam Fisher's here. Hey, Adam, how you doing? I'm doing great and glad to be here. So there are some things that are in here that we knew had to be in here. The garages where these famous companies started, inflection points that we can all point to, Netscape browsers. But then there are parts in here that I never knew about that are fascinating, and we'll get to them. But were there parts in here that you didn't know were to be important and became it became apparent to you that you'd have to uh, dedicate chapters to certain aspects of Silicon Valley that you didn't even conceive of before the book started? When I started the book, I knew it would be three parts. I knew the first part would be the intertwined stories of Atari, Apple, and something called Xerox Park, the 
Palo Alto Research Corporation, you know. And I knew that post-Netscape, that was easy too. You know, the Valley is now dominated by three companies, Apple, Facebook, Google. Those like foundation myths will have to be done. But then there was this mushy middle mm-hmm. that I was scared of. 84, Macintosh launched to 95. And this was when kind of the, the valley was overshadowed by Microsoft from a business uh, sense and uh, nothing was going on. There was failure after failure. And that's the part, the real discoveries I made were really in there. Say we went back to the 90s, this period where it was unclear where we were going. People were probably putting their bets on things that didn't pay off. Smart people. People we recognize today as smart people. What yes. Were, what were some of those bets? What okay. were they wrong about? 84 to 95. Here's what they were wrong about. Social media. Complete failure. Virtual reality. Complete failure. Cell phones. Completely a flop. During this time were the people who became the stars, what were they doing? Were the people who pushed any of those technologies, any of those, you know, now ubiquitous and sexy technologies forward? What what were they obsessed with? They were obsessed with drugs. Yeah. The craziest thing to me is how intertwined this like dying kind of antique psychedelic drug culture left over from the 60s was with this kind of emerging brand new kind of self-aware geek culture. They just kind of discovered themselves Mm -hmm. as a culture maybe in 84 in a big way. And there was uh, an immediate merger or maybe it was the old kind of psychedelic culture exploiting these new kids with their culture but whatever really happened in there there was like this incredible kind of gene transfer for from this the, these two kind of countercultures the, the dominant counterculture and this new baby tiny kind of counterculture because the geek culture really was a counterculture and I think still is when it's pure and and small and so you get you know the first version of virtual reality was literally kind of co-created by Timothy Leary the famous proselytizer for LSD and Terence McKenna the less well-known proselytizer for magic mushrooms you know they they saw this new technology and of course everybody sees everything through their own perspective but they saw virtual reality and they said oh this is like a drug Mm-hmm. that the man can never outlaw, you know? And that's how they built it and tried to sell it. And maybe that's why it failed. There's this way of looking at genius that bifurcates the William Shakespeare kind who invents things, you know, takes established texts, but invents things that wouldn't have existed but for his own head. And then there's the Isaac Newton kind who discovers, still a genius, but discovers laws of the natural universe. And the thinking goes that, you know, if Newton didn't exist, we'd have still pretty much found it. But if Shakespeare didn't exist, all those texts would be lost. I don't know. You think, do you subscribe to that in terms of some of the people who are seen as geniuses and Silicon Valley and who's who? The genius of Silicon Valley is really a creative and even occasionally an artistic genius. And that's the kind of the pure center that has now been like covered with this disgusting scrum of money and power. And that's what I was trying to kind of exhume. That's what I was trying to kind of peel back all those layers and get to the 
really creative, pure heart of it. That's why, for example, I didn't talk to any of the money men. Mm-hmm. They're just a helping profession yeah. at the end of the day, like the PR people or yeah. or whoever. I wonder and worry because their products are so powerful and shape the way, shape our culture and shape the way we think. Many in Silicon Valley, many in the tech world, you know, think of themselves as doing good for the world. Zuckerberg does and don't be evil. And I don't think they're hypocrites, but I worry about sort of subcontracting our morality out to people who also have the drive and genius to build what they've built. I think those might be two incompatible things. Yeah, this is what the whole book is about. How did we get from bicycles for the mind, which is what Jobs, you know, said a personal computer was, to this, okay, where it was described to me as a Skinner box that we voluntarily get into. So B.F. Skinner was this behaviorist who famously treated rats as if they were machines and put them into like featureless boxes and controlled every stimuli in to see what the stimuli out was, you know, and to like figure out the program. And that's what we're in now. Like, you know, maybe whatever social media network you are on can't make you vote for Trump, mm-hmm. can't make you buy something that you don't want to buy. But the law of large numbers means that is not true in aggregate. You can push us in these Skinner boxes. And so what we got now is not what Silicon Valley started with, which was this maker economy. Hey, I made a new computer. I made a, made a peripheral. I made this. I made that. Hey, buy it. It's this extraction economy. It's a mining economy. From reading the testimonials of the people in the book, you come away with thinking they're geniuses. You come away thinking that they definitely have a vision for the world and you don't want to get in their way. But the kind of personality, the personality that is driven to create these remarkable things is not the kind of personality that I would associate. They might be charitable, but I don't think they're nurturing. I don't think they're kind. Not that they're cruel. I just don't think kindness is a huge virtue. And I don't know that they ever think about people of below average skills or intelligence, you know, which is to say at least half of America or the world. I think our entire culture for as long as I've been alive has been one big discrimination play against people who are not smart, like getting a credit card. You know, it's not fair. And I think it it's getting less fair. I'm not sure 100% of the blame goes on to Silicon Valley, though, for that. No, no, not the blame, but this is, but the rewards are accrued to the people who in some ways are best at exploiting the less smart. The problem is the winner-take-all structure, Mm -hmm. I think. And that just naturally arises out of all networks. It's kind of a mathematical law. Yeah. And what we got is a big network. Who in the book exemplifies that? My favorite on that point is this insider name that no one except the real Silicon Valley, like, lifers is going to recognize steve perlman but he was everywhere he was an intern at atari he was at general magic he was building amazing things at apple etc etc anyway he said look at him 
Silicon Valley is Detroit. Detroit in the 50s, there are three big companies that control everything. And that's the problem. You know, the tail fins go on to your little messaging app or, you know, you get a turbocharger on your social media motor. But essentially, it's locked down right now. And the whole spirit of Silicon Valley, the thing that I exhume, the thing that I try to hold up as like a way, a path forward, is this youthful rebellion against things like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where it's going to come from because I don't have a crystal ball, but I can see backwards and I can see the successions of out of left field rebellions from the the young and the technically adept. And they hate this stuff, I think, even more than you do. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're drilling at its foundations, even now. Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley, as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom, and as told to and compiled by Adam Fisher. Thank you very much, Adam. Hey, thanks, man. This was great. Absolutely. And now the spiel. Let's play a little talk show karaoke we haven't played in a while in which we present to you an interview question and then I ask you and I will opine about what answer should have been given. So we go now to ABC's This Week. Jonathan Carl was guest hosting and his guest was National Security Advisor John Bolton. Here was one part of that interview. Well, you know, I always love to have statements that I made uh, in my capacity as a private citizen repeated back to me. I'm glad your researchers had to look into it. I hope they found it an edifying experience. I think the president... Now let's play talk show karaoke. How should Carl have responded? I'd have maybe done something like this. Actually, sir, as journalists, their purpose isn't self-edification. It's the edification of the audience. And I do think it's important to know that there are leading thinkers out there who say that negotiating with Putin is perilous. And I think it's further important to know that you are one of those thinkers. Or maybe you didn't mean it then, or maybe you don't mean it now. That would have been a little bitchy, but it would have been satisfying. Instead, Jonathan Carl took a different route. He just let the job go. But you saw in that answer what Bolton's tactic was during the whole interview. Turn it around and blame the media. The problem isn't that I say one thing as a talking head, but another thing as an advisor. The problem is that your researchers found it out. Then there was this exchange, which was explicitly about the media. And we hear President Trump, doesn't he kind of contribute to that authoritarian effort to undermine a free press when we hear him brand legitimate news organizations as as fake, legitimate news stories as fake? Doesn't that contribute to exactly the kind of undermining of the free press uh, that we see out of Russia? No, I don't think that has anything to do with it. And let's just be clear. Franklin Roosevelt met with Joseph Stalin at a time when uh, activity in Russia was a lot worse than it is today. I'm not excusing present conduct, but it didn't seem to bother Franklin Roosevelt. And liberal Democrats weren't bothered at the time when he met with Stalin. So let's, let's try and 
uh, have some historical perspective here and, and not act like we have the attention span of fruit flies. Okay. Again, to talk show karaoke. I would have loved to hear a little indignity out of Jonathan Carl at this point. Actually, sir, I'm asking you about your boss's technique of denigrating the free press, which is borrowed from and emboldens autocrats who are enemies of the free press. When FDR met with Stalin, which was, by the way, in the service of combating Hitler, the problem wasn't FDR using the same techniques as Stalin. We didn't worry about FDR emboldening Stalin. My question is, how can the U.S. ever say to Russia, don't crack down on journalists if our own president is constantly in a war with journalists? Instead, Carl took a much softer, more oblique tack. But but wait a minute, I'm not asking whether or not it's legitimate or, or appropriate for him to meet with Vladimir Putin. I'm asking if the president branding real news organizations, real news stories as not real contributes to this effort that we see from the Russians and from other authoritarians to undermine a free press. Uh, of course not. I really honestly, Jonathan, I think the question's silly. Well, l- let me ask you about. And don't say I'm attacking freedom of the press. I just characterized your question. And with that, Carl basically lets it go. Okay, well, you were also scheduled to appear on CNN this morning, and the White House... Let's recap. The question is, does denigrating the people whose job it is to ask questions hurt freedom? And you know how Bolton answered? He denigrated the question, and he was free to do it, because Jonathan Carl was content to let him be the alpha dog in that situation. Look... I, of all people, know that hosts of talk shows, of interview shows, get a lot of crap for not asking the questions that the listener would like asked. And sometimes the questions the listener would like asked are along the lines of, go fuck yourself. Thoughts? And then when you don't ask it, the listener alleges, you only didn't tell the guy to go fuck himself because you want access. I get that. I get the dynamic. But really, there are lots of good ways to challenge a guest who is not being fair or honest and therefore is deceiving the audience. You're not doing your job as a host to serve the audience if you let every interview subject bully you. In fact, at the very moment that Jonathan Carl was letting John Bolton dunk on him, over at NBC, Chuck Todd was rejecting conservative Hugh Hewitt with a Matumbo-esque finger wag. First, we'll hear from Hewitt. I just think that the American media is trying to infuse Donald Trump with a, a sort of willful blindness that he doesn't demonstrate. What the heck are you talking about with media? This is not media. This is John McCain. This is uh, this is actual serious. This is Mark Warner. These are de- these are serious officials on both sides. Now, this is not the media. The this is such a that's such a cop summit. out. Yes. That's what an interviewer's job is supposed to be. People think a moderator needs to always be moderate. Not true. Now, you might say, okay, Hugh Hewitt is a paid contributor to NBC. It's different from interviewing an administration official. Well, actually, in some ways, it's more awkward. Chuck Todd isn't there to make NBC's own contributor look dishonest. If Chuck Todd succeeds in ruining Hugh Hewitt's credibility, it actually hurts the parent company. But it's also not the case that Chuck Todd has let administration officials dictate the terms of debate. Remember this one? You're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Alternative facts for the five facts he uttered. The one thing he got right was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. 
Kudos to Chuck Todd for reacting with an honest human scoff at that construction. He met the ridiculous with ridicule as he should have. You know, if Chuck Todd had just said, okay, moving on from that, it's possible that the whole alternative fact idea would not still be in the pantheon of absurd Trump administration statements. And that is quite a pantheon. If there's a reason that it seems like I'm picking on Jonathan Carl, maybe there is. Maybe I'm still a little sore that he went out of his way to criticize Michelle Wolf during the correspondence dinner. Uh, you know, my my take here uh, was that the comedian Michelle Wolf went over the line. This was not the idea. This was not the intention. So there's Jonathan Carl using his platform as host of this week to go out of his way to take umbrage with a comedian doing her job. But in that very position, host of this week, this week, <laughs> he does or says very little when the national security advisor fails to engage substantively on very good questions. Good on him for asking the questions, but the follow-up should have been better, should have been tougher. And I know it's hard in the moment to know how much to push and when to say, hold on now, but the national security advisor reacting to legitimate questions about President Trump's press bashing with Nothing more than a little press bashing of his own. Well, that seems like something you would want to call out at least as much as I shadow jokes from a comic. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who note that Chuck Todd, Jonathan Carl, and Chris Wallace host three shows, but have six first names among them. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, notes that when Major Garrett fills in on Face the Nation, he's just one guy with one first name, only it comes second. The gist, I hope you enjoyed your July 16th. How the 16th is not four squares, four square day. I have no idea. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online, at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into Jira tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.